From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis of Post Media, and on the line today from the Big Apple from New York, uh, Zach Urbach. Zach is a consultant for NHL teams uh, on, a, on the analytics side. He also works for the Mississauga Steelheads. And uh, the reason why he's in New York is because he's a law student. So a lot of things on the go. Uh, what's going on, Zach? Hey, John. Not too much. Thanks for having me here. No problem. So you're, you're a busy dude, and uh, we're leading up to free agency here. So I wanted to get you on the show uh, to shed some light on so maybe some under-the-radar free agents, uh, UFA specifically, who teams should be interested in, and, and you know they, they probably are interested in, but let's go into why. And, uh, and then from there, we'll, we'll talk about the draft a little bit because uh, you were in Chicago for it. And uh, also, you, know, you had guys uh, from the Mississauga Steelheads that went in the first round. Um, and then we'll talk about your, your position with the Steelheads and, and really just what you do there and, uh, and, and, and how the organization uses analytics. Are, are you cool with that setup? Yeah, I know. That's all, uh, that all sounds great to me. Okay, so free agency. We're recording this on Thursday night, uh, which is the 30th. So Saturday is the big day in terms of uh, July 1, free agency opens. We'll see what happens in terms of rumors and who signs where. Uh, in the lead up to then, but um, I, guess, I guess off the top, uh, let's let's kind of talk about some of the bigger names, and, and and we won't spend too much time on that because you know there's there's a million words written about these guys by now, um, and there, there's not much more to say. I guess you could say that's that's uh, that's original. Um, so uh, you know, if if we're kind of ranking the top free agents, I, I mean, Kevin Shattenkirk's probably the number one, correct? Yeah, you know, I mean. With with Shattenkirk, you're obviously getting a real good player. Um, analytics sort of illuminate that he's a little bit more proficient than maybe some of the more traditional scouting types would uh, would make him out to be. But I still think that he is. Um, I I don't know if he's necessarily quite as good as some some others may feel. But I think he's definitely a real good, at least number three defenseman, more realistically a number two guy who you can sort of put on the second pairing, shelter him a little bit, but not too much, and really just have him go off on the power play. So Shattenkirk's probably uh, the best player in free agency, or at least the best defenseman. Um, I think there's a case to be made, honestly, that uh, Joe Thornton is the best player available in free agency. Um, and I think he's also a little less likely to burn a team moving forward than uh, Shattenkirk could be. And I mean... Schottenkirk's a real good player, like I mentioned, but I'm imagining, given his place on the market right now, he's going after a seven-year deal. And he's not particularly old. He's, I think, 28 years old. But what's he going to be in seven years? It's tough to say. You're you're not just giving him term. You're giving him money, too. With Joe Thornton, it could come down to who does he think he's able to win with and who can give him maybe one or two year or two or three years rather than just one year? And so you're not going to have that same bite back with a guy like Thornton. He can really push a team over the top, but I mean, obviously between Thornton and Shattenkirk, you're not comparing two equal players here. They're apples and oranges. Yeah, with Shattenkirk, he made four point two five last year, so he's obviously getting a healthy raise on that, and he has all the leverage in the world as being. Uh, power play quarterback, right-handed, 
the market is is pretty thin uh, in terms of free agents in general, and especially with defensemen. So, I mean, if I'm his agent, I'm I, I'm listening around to everyone, and I'm going back to to Shattenkirk and going, this is what's on the table, and just I think they're probably going to have a field day in terms of uh, money and term here. Yeah, and this whole uh, free agent negotiation window, the, the the new system that recently came into the NHL, I think that um, that's only going to play into his hands, given the fact that really, I would imagine every single team in the market with a couple million in cap space is at least giving him a call. Um, and whether you're Arizona and you think you have a boatload of cap space to throw at him, or you're Toronto and you could offer that same sort of thing, or Buffalo, or maybe even a team that's closer up against the cap that says to Schottenkirk, do you really want to win? So that window is definitely going to work in his favor. It will come down to what he wants. Early sort of reports that have surfaced seem to indicate that he wants to be uh, in, a, in, a, in a place where he can have some financial security in the term, which is great for him as well. Uh, we'll see where he ends up, but wherever it is, I have no doubt that he will be able to help a team significantly. Well, and the funny thing about free agency is that there's always a lot of buildup, and sometimes guys just end up maybe maybe in the t- in the same place that they used to they used to play in. And and you know you look at Marlow, uh, he's also a free agent, and Thornton, two guys that have that that just personify uh, the San Jose Sharks, and you know two guys that will probably get their numbers retired by the team, and they could both be gone, or they could both be back, or one could be gone. Uh, Marlowe I find very interesting in terms of the place that he's at because he actually put up some really good numbers last year, whereas it looked like maybe previously he was starting to tail off. So he's got that leverage. Um, but still, uh, similar to Thornton where these guys are aging and if you're a team that's that's thinking about the long-term term picture of, of your payroll, I mean, you can't be throwing out, you know, four or five years for these guys when they're not even going to be there. Or if they are there, they're likely not going to be big contributors by, you know, year 40. Yeah, definitely. i got to agree with you there. I mean, um, I don't think there's many GMs in the league that are lining up to hand Joe Thornton five or six years at this point in his, in his career. But him and Marlowe are still really good players. I mean, obviously uh, Joe Thornton's quite a bit better than, uh, than Marlowe. He's been that way for the last few years. Uh, they're pretty similar in age. Who knows? Maybe they could end up signing together outside of San Jose, and a team is just getting two thirds of a of an of an awesome second line right there out of free agency, and they're willing to take a bit of a discount because they want to help a team win, and they haven't been able to have that success in not in uh, sorry in uh, San Jose. So it'll be interesting to see how that all transpires. But I think, like I said, whoever gets Joe Thornton, it's a pretty good bet that they're going to be a Cup favorite this year because. Joe Thornton's most likely not signing with a team that's not a cup favorite. And then you add Joe Thornton to the equation, now you have a great team, whoever it is. But the one sort of thing that I've been pondering recently with guys like uh, Marlowe and guys like Thornton, I wonder if uh, a team, like I mentioned Arizona in the past, um, if Arizona is willing to throw a lot of money at them on a short-term deal, a one-year deal, and say to these guys, look, play it out for the first half of the season here, help us bring the fans in our seats, help us win some games, because that's really big for a market like that. And we've seen some of the moves that they, uh, they've made Arizona, and I think they could turn some heads this year a little bit. But we'll, we'll give you guys full authority. You'll be completely involved in the process to trade yourselves at the deadline. And we can retain salary too, because if you're Arizona, if you're John Shikey here, you could get a first-round pick for each of them. 
and it's going to cost you some money, but you can probably get more than that, honestly, if they're healthy and they have solid starts to the year. And then if you're Joe Thornton or Patrick Marlowe, what you're looking at is a situation where you're being placed on a potential cup favorite. So I think that's an interesting uh, possibility to consider. Yeah, it's kind of the, the Ray Bork uh, route, so to speak, except mid-season where you kind of have your your pick at, at, at the contender that you want to go to. And obviously this is a kind of a pie-in-sky idea that we're throwing out there, but, you know, with Marlowe, I could see it, I could see it unfolding that way because he's he's such a durable guy, and I guess, I guess to to a lesser extent, uh, Thornton. They're both pretty durable considering their age at this point. Where you know they could be already, I don't know, twenty goals in, or or in Thornton's case, thirty assists in by the deadline, and teams are going, you know, how can we pass on on a guy like this that could be slotted in as as a really important piece uh, towards the playoff run. So I, I I don't I don't hate that idea at all. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I mean like I like I mentioned uh, one of the big aspects that I think can make it attractive to a lot of other teams as well, and a way for Arizona to maximize value in a way that they're able to, is by retaining salary at the deadline because then you could really squeeze them anywhere. Because at the deadline, the way the cap works pretty much leads to teams being able to really add and an, any uh, any solidly paid player as long as they're managing their cap in a sort of healthy way. And it doesn't even need to happen at the trade deadline. It could happen in January. It could happen in December once there's a better indication of who are the elite teams this season and who can make Joe Thornton and or Patrick Marlowe fit on that team. But uh, you hit on uh, durability a little bit. That's the one thing that's actually my concern with Joe Thornton. And he's been an extremely durable player pretty much his uh, whole career, but he underwent um, knee surgery. Right, right. He's 37 years old. And people recover from those injuries all the time, and they have a seamless transition. But there's also people who don't recover that same way. So I think you've got to do your homework. You've got to do your due diligence here. And that's where I think something like a sports science department can be an astronomical help from ownership's perspective, if you're investing even 500 grand in this type of department, you could be avoiding multi-million dollar mistakes. You're probably not going to be creating value in the same way you may with some other sort of ventures that you can invest in, but you can definitely avoid losing dollars, and that's important. Now, if we switch our gears to uh, value picks, uh, guys in the, in the free agent market that are either flying under the radar or just aren't that's sexy on the surface, um, or, or you know what, uh, d- just the way to put it is that they may be one-dimensional, or uh, they may not be completely as polished, or as, as or don't have the star quality of, of a Marlowe or a Thornton or whoever it may be. Um, yeah, so uh, throw one out Thornton there, and we'll go from the there. One name that's sort of I, I've been keeping an eye on for a few months now. Um, I uh, just sort of assume that he was going to uh, re-sign in Philly. I mean, they're the, the team that gave him a chance. And he's had a, a long track record of tearing up the junior leagues and the American League. Um, and he never really got a shot with L.A., and he did with Philly. Now that it seems like he is going to be leaving Philly, um, a lot of others have started to pick up on him. So I don't know if he's the same under the radar to everyone that he may have been a while ago. But Jordan Wheel, if you use him properly, he can score. We know that. Or, or set other guys up to score, at least. And Jordan Wheel had some pretty impressive underlying numbers when he was put in that position to succeed in Philly and L.A. when he was given an NHL uh, shot. He was put in a role that he just didn't fill. And you can't expect a guy to adapt like that um, when that's not his skill set. And if you don't recognize that in a player, 
then you're just not going to maximize their value, and that's fine. That doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad coach or a bad GM. But if you make, if you identify a player with a lot of strengths, even if they have other weaknesses, and use them to their strengths, you can maximize value and create something out of it. Um, and I think that he could be this year's Johnny Marchesso type of player. But I think with the emergence of Marchesso uh, last season, where he's a guy that had a fairly similar uh, track record to Wheel and the success that he had this year, I think that's raised a lot of eyebrows about a guy like Wheel. So a lot of teams have identified him as that type of guy, a potential Johnny Marchesso. Whether or not that happens, who knows? But I think that he's getting a lot more interest than he would have if he was on the market last season, having done the exact same things. Um, so Jordan Wheel, first obvious candidate for my uh, perspective in terms of a forward who can sort of fly under the radar and create real value. Yeah, and he he made six fifty thousand last year. So this guy was a uh, you know, and that's at the NHL level. He um, he didn't spend the entire year there. And you know, one thing about him and his numbers is, you know, obviously there's a huge sample size issue, uh, red flags there. But in the in the twenty three games that he played with Philly, um, in the two hundred minutes that he spent with Wayne Simmons. Uh, he had a huge impact on possession because when Simmons was away from him, uh, that that possession uh, it, it swayed the other way into the red or close to the red. So w- Wheels got something there. Um, I think uh, probably most teams are hoping that there was a you know a bigger data set or even just eye test uh, behind him. I know he's been around for a while, but um, it, it's still I don't know if, if every team thinks that they they have a sure thing with Jordan Wheel. Um, I guess we'll see with that. But yeah, with, and there's not so many guys who can score like he has for so many years in the American League. I think it's been three or four years that he's been really a uh, point-per-game player or somewhere near that. Um, he's an undersized guy. It's easy to understand why he's flown under the radar because in those limited samples with L.A., he didn't look so good, like I said, in that wrong type of fit. So it makes sense why these guys sort of fly under the radar. And to evaluate their AHL success when the knocks on them on a guy like Wheel, is he projects to be a great AHLer going back to his draft year. I mean, what do you really have there? I'm fairly confident in the player, but I can understand why others may not be so confident. Um, and another guy who's sort of similar to Wheel in that way is Kenny Augustino. And Augustino's put up some real good numbers in the American League. He's, again, a 25-year-old guy, hasn't really been given a real NHL shot yet other than games here and here. And I'd be really curious to see what he could do this year. He had 85 points, I think, in, in, in like 65 games or something along those lines in the American League this year. Um, a lot of that was driven by some puck luck that he wasn't getting in past years. But when you're putting up numbers that big and you haven't gotten an NHL shot and you're a USA, you deserve to find a, a team that's willing to gamble on you and willing to give you a shot in their top 12 at least. Well, and, and if we can relate it back to, to Margisil, so with these tor- sort of players, I guess they're the smaller, uh, you know, AHL stars, if you want to call it that, who have produced at, at a certain level, the level right below the NHL, but just either aren't giving a chan- given a chance at the NHL level until a later in their career, around 25. Um, what do you think the main reason behind that is, other, other than maybe... Um, you know the GM just just doesn't like him, or or just he hasn't caught a break. Do you can, do you know any reasons just uh, big picture with with these type of players why they tend to just be overlooked? Yeah, I sort of alluded to that uh, previously when I was discussing Jordan Wheel. But you look at a guy like Marcheseau, who's listed at five nine. He's a QMJHL scorer, and there's 
5-9 QMJHL scores are dime a dozen. And they come in through all the time. And a guy like Marcheseau turns some heads in the AHL with his skill level, is sort of typecasted as that undersized, pure offense. And, I mean, Marcheseau, if you've watched him play in the defensive zone, he doesn't know what's going on. I don't know what he's doing there. (laughs) But offensively, he's great. Um, And he's proven that in the American League. But it makes sense that, like I said, teams just sort of typecast them into this American League scorer role. And 5, 10, 15 years ago, when these guys and these GMs were playing, or for the ones who did, and scouts and et cetera, those types of scores wouldn't most likely have thrived in the NHL the way they are today, but the game is so different. And evaluators of talent, I guess, are starting to really uh, realize the changes in the, in the rules, in the style of play that teams are having. And now, as a result of that, you're getting more smaller-skilled guys, so it makes it easier for another smaller-skilled guy to survive in this league because there's less Chris Pronger's out trying to head on them. So that's just my sort of uh, my hypothesis on the whole matter. I think that we're going to see a lot more of these guys come through. Um, on one hand, you could start thinking, well, how many players like Johnny March are so flew under the radar their entire career, went to Europe or stayed in the American League their whole life or whatever, and never got an NHL shot? There's probably a few. But I think what the real difference is is that this league now facilitates those types of players from excelling in a way that the old league didn't pre-lockout. Yeah, I'm on the I'm on the Jordan Wheel bandwagon in terms of someone giving him a realistic shot and and seeing what happens with it because, um, you know, this is kind of a snowball effect where maybe you see uh, the Seth Griffiths of the world who are are total sort of AHL tweeners where they they're a little too good for the AHL. Uh, they go down there and they're basically a guaranteed point per game, maybe higher than that for season after season, but then. You know, maybe they get a shot for a few games uh, in the NHL, and then they're sent back down. Um, maybe Griffiths is a terrible example because he had a shot in Florida for about 20 games and didn't make uh, great use of it. But um, there's a lot of guys out there that are sort of uh, typecast, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, I think that's a pretty prevalent issue, um, especially with those forwards. And the same goes for defensemen. There's a guy, uh, David Rosowski. Um, anyone who watched that uh, international tournament, I think it was two years ago, saw him playing for the for the US and he was remarkable and I kept thinking like this guy Rosowski is unbelievable. And I had recognized the name a little bit but I, I wasn't so familiar with the player so I started watching a little bit of Will Sperry this season and he's unbelievable. He, he controls the entire pace in the American League. His underlying numbers are ridiculous. They're off the chart everywhere in every sort of key success indicator that I sort of look at um, in the American League. Every single way he's blowing them up. The only issue with Rosowski is a little old at this point, and obviously he's a fairly flawed player in a lot of ways, which is why he hasn't been given an NHL shot, most notably because he's five foot nine. But I think that there's a handful of teams that will pay for maybe a Kevin Shattenkirk, a guy who they're prepared to shelter a little bit and really throw it on the power play. If you've got $750,000 in cap space, why not try it on Rosowski at the one way? And that's a guy who you know can control an NHL power play, the same way he can do it in the American League. I think that the power play uh, quarterback ability when you're that good is going to translate. And if you're prepared to shelter your third pairing regardless or you're prepared to shelter someone on your defense, why not give him a shot? The worst-case scenario is you have a guy on a one-way now who's making very little money that isn't contributing to your team the way you want and you have to pay him a lot to be in the American League. 
but teams waste $750,000, a million dollars, whatever number you want to look at it, in a lot of worse ways, and they don't have that same sort of potential for upside a guy like he does. Um, and, and the same goes for a guy who Jersey picked up last offseason, Johan Ovitu, the French uh, defenseman, another right. smaller guy who's unbelievable offensively, a great skater, can read the play so well, and just destroyed the American League and a lot of these underlying numbers I like to look at. And... Uh, deserves, I think, a, a real shot in a sheltered third-pair power play role. With with defensemen, uh, a guy that's always intrigued me and I, I haven't really figured out, though, is, is Michael Delzato. Uh, he's a free agent. He's he's sort of in a second tier of, of the defensemen available where he's not in the Shattenkirk-Alsner area in terms of the amount of money that will be spent on those guys. But he, he's in there. He's, he's not, you know, not going to get a $1 million deal, or I doubt he will. Um, you know, he made 3.875 last year with Philly, and uh, he saw his uh, his ice time drop. I'm not 100 100% sure uh, the reason behind that, um, but he used to average around 20 to 23. He was he was 19, 30 last year, so um, not sure if there's issues there. But what he's developed into, and he's 27 now, so this is kind of him. This is him in his in his prime or or around his prime. Um, he's developed into. Uh, to most teams, or, or through most uh, GMs' uh, eyes, a, a number four puck mover uh, that who, that can be on the first or second power play. Um, at least that's how most people view him. I don't know what your take is on uh, Mr. Michael Delzato. Yeah, so you know the interesting thing with uh, Delzato for me is really is that he was a real good power play defenseman when he first came in the NHL, but his power play contributions have gone down pretty steadily, and. I wasn't sure what the answer was when I started looking into that question a few months ago, but the number one thing I noticed from watching videos is it looks like teams have started to recognize his tendencies. And that happens to a lot of players, I think, when they first come in the league. I think that's partially, partially I think, why a lot of these bigger-name players have these sophomore slumps. Like, you look at a guy like Shane Gossespierre, obviously he's on a PDO ride. Yeah. The team sort of identified, okay, this is what this player does, because the pre-scouts in the NHL sometimes can be tremendous. Right. Um, but when you close the guy's... When, when, you, when you close the gap on a guy and you don't give him the free time to do what he wants to do or, or you know exactly what he wants to do, and you can take away that time and space from him, they have to adapt. And it seems like Del Zotto just never got around to adapting his power play. So once teams started to key in and realize that Del Zotto's a legit power play guy, the same way he was throughout his entire OHL career, he didn't adapt. Um, I think I agree with you that he's probably a a lower-end second-pairing guy, a real high-end third-pair guy. He's going to get paid quite a bit, I think. Um, and by quite a, quite a bit, I mean in that sort of four million dollar range, maybe a four by four deal. Um, but again, it's it, it's strange because you look like such a good power play guy who's really fallen off in that category. Um, but at even strength, he's still a solid power play guy. He can move the puck decently well. Um, he's real inconsistent though, and that's the other thing with Del's Auto. So I think you can maximize his value again by sheltering him a little bit putting him in positions to thrive, and maybe having your video coach or whoever it is that does your power play to break down what he used to do, what he does now, and trying to trying to figure out a way if you can find, if he can rejuvenate some of his previous success in the power play. That's a really good point about pre-scouts, because you think about pre-scouts and you go, oh, uh, you know, they're just kind of throwing stuff, uh, you know, against the wall and hoping some of it sticks. But when you have a, a, a defenseman, like an offensive quarterback of the power play, 
they only have so many tricks in their bag in terms of how they break out of the zone, what they're doing on the point, how they're entering uh, the other team's zone. Like, I could, I, I'm just picturing, you know, them having this huge file on Delzato or, like you said, Gostabair, where, where it's just, you know, these are the type of players that you can sort of pin down and go, this is what he does at this moment, and then he does it. And then, you know, you, you just sort of, you game plan against him, and all of a sudden he's out there kind of scrambling, and, and, and he's just not as effective. Yeah, and I think pre-scouting, uh, sometimes you're throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks, and maybe you pick up on something that's not actually there. But sometimes you actually do identify things that are important. Um, that's, I think, a large area where data analytics can sort of, or analysis rather, can, can help a video coach or whoever's passed at the pre-scout there. Um, but I think on the power play is probably the area where you're most likely to to identify a way of, of pre-scouting as a, as a way of creating value. And so if, if that's your bread and butter and it's the power play, you have to have the ability to adapt a little bit when people take away what you like. And with Delzado, he's not the same unbelievable lateral mover that a lot of these other power play quarterbacks are who not only are great with the puck, with great vision, a good shot, good passers, but they can move laterally and, and their pivots are so strong. With Delzato, I don't sort of see that same area of strength with him, but he's also dealt with some injuries in the past, so I wonder uh, how much of an impact that's had on him as well. All right, if we can just group together a couple guys and, and, and I mean, I'm grouping them together mainly by position and, and age. Uh, Justin Williams, 35-year-old winger, right-handed shot. P.A. Parento, right-handed winger, 34. Um, clearly, Williams' track record is above and beyond uh, Parento, but Parento seems to be one of those guys that always comes up as, uh, you know, he's floating around. He's, I believe he's been on eight teams, um, but he, he's fairly, fairly productive given his, uh, his ice time. So I see them both sort of being grouped together in the sense that, you know, a team's probably not going up after both of them. I mean, they're probably taking their pick. Um, Williams will command more money for sure. Um, and he, he's basically a guarantee for 40 to 50 points. At least that's what he's been uh, with Washington and L.A. Uh, over the last few years. So um, what are your thoughts on those two guys? Um, I don't know if you're, you're high on one more than the other or if they're just completely oh, I, different I'm players. I'm a huge, uh, huge Williams fan. He's so, so, so good along the boards. He battles his ass off. And, um, he just has a knack for, for recognizing the play as it's developing on the ice. And I know this sounds sort of antiquated to say because a lot of people don't necessarily feel this way. I don't know if he's clutch in the sense that if it's game seven, he's going to score just because it happens to be game seven. But when you're that age and you've done what Justin Williams has done throughout your entire career, I don't know how important the regular season really is to you. And whether that's a mental thing where you focus a little bit more in the playoffs or you give it a little bit more of an effort, you're willing to go into the dirtier areas that you're not so willing to go into the regular season. And obviously that same effect is happening on everyone. But it seems like a guy like William, he really turns it up in the playoffs. So I don't know if he's turning it up in the playoffs or he's just holding back a little in the regular season. But regardless of what it is, I'm a huge fan of Williams. Um, I really like the player. But I think uh, Parento, like you said, he's a guy that sort of could be a a solid backup plan. Um, For whatever reason... Parento must rub coaches the wrong way, uh, given his playing style. Or yeah, there's, the there's got to be something there, right? I mean, it's not if if this guy's fairly productive in the ice time that he's given, but he keeps bouncing around. Like 
there's something there that that we're not seeing through watching and and through the statistics. Uh, that's that's my guess. I mean, we 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 can only guess really. Yeah, well, you know, Prento, he he does a lot of the things that the coaches hate. Um, he, he tries plays that sometimes are a little bit above his his ability, and we know that coaches are very risk averse in general. So when you see a guy doing that who's not Claude Giroux, but you see Pierre Prento trying to pull off Claude Giroux move, it frustrates them a little bit when it's not successful, and even when it is successful. Um, so that's one knock on him, and he's and. and He's not a guy who is soft in the sense that he's absolutely terrified of, of playing the body. I think he throws around some hits. But he doesn't like going into the grittier areas. Like, sometimes he, he gives off a gritty element in his game, and other times he doesn't. And I think when you're that age, when you're a guy like Prento who's known as a vet, coaches have a certain expectation. This can go to their biases, but they have a sort of expectation that you're going to bring consistency night in and night out and be a good role model for the younger players. And with Prento even if the results are there in some of the fancier stats, it's not going to resonate so well with a coach who's looking at a guy who's sometimes lazy, sometimes is on his game, he doesn't know what he's going to get with him. So I think that, that sort of bias, when you have a certain expectation and they don't exceed or meet your expectations, regardless of what the results are, I sort of see that muddying the waters a little bit for your coach's judgment. And uh, as much as I, I would, if I was a coach or a general manager, I'd like to have some sort of shootout specialist. And by I'm putting specialists in air quotes because, I mean, you don't want a, one, a guy to just do that. But as someone that you know you can throw over the boards during a shootout, as much as I would like to have that guy, shootouts are just, they're, they're dying. There's just not that many of them anymore. And I don't think that his value is, is as high as it maybe used to be, Parento, because he used to be known as, as you know, he's a, sort of like a UC Oaken in uh, light in terms of shootouts. Uh, he was very effective in them. So, I, I mean, he's going to get picked up, whether it's uh, free agency or at a training camp. He's an NHL player. I just wonder uh, what team he's going to land on, because he's been with eight NHL teams since 2006, and I'm not even counting. Uh, he spent some time with uh, the Hartford Wolfpack, so he's been around. Yeah, I wonder if he's a guy who could end up going back to the Islanders, and uh, uh, that's a team that supposedly is looking for some offense. I mean, he can get a good fit there, maybe try to rejuvenate himself a little bit with John Tavares. It's very possible. I, if we can wrap up uh, the free agent segment of uh, of this podcast, do you have anyone else that you would like to uh, pontificate about? Yeah, I guess the one person that I want to raise light on is Andre Nestrel. Um, he played for the Hurricanes last season and the, a couple seasons before. Um, he's a big boy. I think he's about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, uh, I think he's a natural center. He's ended up playing on the wing. Um, I think he was a Red Wings pick back in the day, and they had some pretty high expectations for him at one point. Um, but they ended up moving him to Carolina, and, and he's been a real good defensive forward. He's played some tough minutes. Uh, played quite a bit with Jordan Stahl as well, and and uh, I mean when you got a when you got a big boy who can play like that and he's tough to handle and he can actually hold his own, and he's not just a detriment on your team. There should be value there, but with him is he's dealt with an injury this year. He wasn't able to find his his he wasn't able to earn a, a spot on uh, the Hurricanes this year, and not a ton of people are really watching the Hurricanes. Let's be honest. I mean, and I don't mean that as a shot against anyone in Carolina, but there's an exposure effect for sure when yep. it comes to scouts. Absolutely. Um, you look at what happened when Daniel Winnick came to Toronto. Suddenly, Daniel Winnick was the prize of free agency, but he wasn't doing anything different in Toronto mm. than he was doing elsewhere. That's a good point. Just the exposure came. So when you're a fourth, third liner, doesn't have some standout skill in any way, 
and your upside is probably a third-line guy, it's easy to see why you fly under the radar. And so Nestral is a, a, team, a guy that I think a team uh, can really use to help out their depth. Um, teams are, are, are starving for money, especially in this offseason, given the flat cap. And he's a guy you can probably get on cheap who can re- really help your team. And then there's, there's interesting guys like Sam Gagne, uh, who I would take a chance on. Um, he's still he's 27 somehow. I feel like he entered the league like, well, I guess he entered the league like nine or ten years ago because he was 18. But yeah, I remember it real well. He's a seven, his first season, a 18 year old, and on the Oilers. And I remember back at the time, the big debate was uh, Sam Gagne or Luke Shen. Who would you rather have <laughs> if you're an Oilers or a Leafs fan? I have a few friends who are Oilers fans, and that was a big uh, discussion point. And let's see how that one turned out. But. Uh, Gagne, I mean, he sort of rejuvenated his career uh, last season with Columbus, so I don't know if he's going to fly under the radar the same way he did last season. I wouldn't be surprised if Gagne gets paid. Yeah, well, he sort of, he deserves it. I mean, the guy's, uh, he's adjusted his game, and, and he's, with Tortorella, he was put on the power play a lot and, and not given a ton of five-on-five minutes, but it worked out for, for Tortorella and for him and for the team. So I think teams look at that and go, Either we're going to do that with someone in-house who we think, uh, you know, we should just throw it on the power play for almost the full two minutes and be be that uh, sidewall presence or, or whatever it may be. Um, or maybe they, they, they go after Gagne and go, we like what you did there and we want you to do it here. Yeah, and I think that uh, Gagne is just, uh, with Tortorella last year with the Blue Jackets, is just a great example of um, a sort of shift in the mentality, sort of like what we were discussing earlier in the way that coaches are sort of perceiving players. And now they're starting to use them to their strengths rather than criticizing them for their flaws. Uh, it seemed like back in the day, it was really you try to you try to fit a square peg into a round hole. Um, and if and if Sam Gagne the square peg doesn't fit in that fourth line grinder rule, or Jordan Wheeler or whoever, we'll find a guy who can do that fourth line grinder rule. Instead, now it sort of seems that teams are saying, okay, well Sam Gagne's got a ton of skill, or Jordan Wheeler's got a ton of skill. How can we maximize his output and hide his weaknesses? And so smart teams are going to be able to take advantage of that and smart coaches and put players in positions to succeed and try to fill their holes in, in, in appropriate ways. That's a good transition to uh, what I wanted to talk about next, which was uh, the draft and, and just big picture from, from 30,000 feet, how you approach the draft in terms of, you know, uh, I, I for the life of me, I don't understand why teams don't go best player available nine times out of ten. Um, and just you can find those, those like you said, the fourth liners or whoever, they'll either pop up in your system over time or you get them in free agency on the cheap. So I've never really understood uh, the thinking behind uh, filling your system with all these different positions um, when really you, you should just be going after the highest skilled guy, after the most talented guy, and figuring it out from then because – I think assets are the most important uh, thing to have in the NHL, especially in the cap era where, uh, you know, you if you have a top prospect and he doesn't fit into your team for whatever reason, well, you can ship him out, uh, you know, for a guy who can slot in elsewhere. Like, it's a, it's a very valuable thing to have. Yeah, well, I think that um, the first thing is teams are generally not saying we need to rank a defenseman first rather than a forward just because we need the best player available. I'm sure it's happened before, but... I think what a lot of fans don't realize is what an NHL team's draft list actually looks like. Um, because what NHL draft fans have exposure to, with the exception of, I guess, Bob McKenzie's sort of aggregate scout list, 
is really a bunch of independent scouting services, um, whether it be McKean's or Hockey Prospect or Dauber Hockey or whoever, whoever or Draft Buzz, whoever it is. Yeah. But a lot of these scouts sort of, I think, project a lot of players based off their own intuition, which is great. But I think there's also a lot of bias that creeps in based off saying, oh, well, I saw that this scouting service has this guy here and this one does too, so we kind of we, will look like morons if we have them in the third round when that's how they feel. NHL teams, on the other hand, I don't think really think that way. Um, I've seen quite a few teams list, and rarely do they represent what the mainstream is. You'll have guys ranked third overall or eighth overall that you thought were second rounders and guys that you thought were high-end talents outside the first round. And look no further than the year uh, Philip Forsberg dropped. And obviously this is a case where a lot of teams probably uh, had it sort of come back to bite them in the ass. But Forsberg dropped way further than anyone thought he could go. People were talking that he could go as high as number two that year. And I wonder if Columbus... Sorry, if Edmonton ended up taking Ryan Murray first overall that season, would Philip Forsberg have gone second to the Blue Jackets? It sort of sounded like that at the time. Um, but for whatever reason, maybe he was just one behind that best player available on every team's draft list. Anaheim took uh, Hampus Lindholm. Everyone thought they were locked to take Forsberg. I wonder if Hampus Lindholm was their first overall ranked player. Yeah. And Brian Burke famously said that Morgan Riley was their first overall ranked player. I, I, I don't think he was lying. Yeah, well, I just that that was the one uh, name that came to my mind uh, when you were talking about these different lists. Is like, it, it, it's convenient when the GM comes out and says that after, oh, the fifth guy that you know we got in the fifth spot, he was our number one. But you know, in some cases, it's probably true, and you you do see these quote unquote off the board choices uh, that maybe you're just going, okay, they see it differently than uh, than whatever this ranking uh, sees it as, uh, you know, online somewhere. Um, what what about with statistics and the eye test and the draft? Like, how do you, as as a guy who's consulting for an NHL team or or just I don't know, a, an educated fan, a guy looking at the draft, how do you meld them together? Because uh, especially with the junior numbers, they're they're very lacking. Um, you know, the best you're going to get are shots, not not shot attempts. That's just an example of. Um, of sort of the lack of data, and there's no time on ice. How do you how do you factor in the data with with the eye test? Okay, well that's a great question, um, and, and it's something that it, it's it's obviously extremely tough, and it's individual. And I think optimally you'd be fusing in everything. Optimally, and something that we're looking to do in Mississauga this season is, and we'll get to that a bit later without giving away too many details. But we're looking to incorporate scouts rankings scouting reports, the draft analytics that we're doing in terms of statistical projections, and that, fusing all that into a new model, one that incorporates all the various sort of elements of scouting and then trying to spit out rankings. Um, and so the first thing that I want to get at is ranking is so tough. I don't think people realize that. <laughs> and that's a big area where numbers can help because – if, if, if let's say you're a big fan of eating at restaurants, so okay, yeah. Now I tell you, rank your 200 favorite meals in order. Good luck. Yeah. You, you'll probably be able to do the first five or ten in a pretty good order, and the bottom five or ten. But how are you distinguishing between 56 and 78? It's tough. It's arbitrary. 
And so I think that's an area where sort of the analytics can real help, really help if you're incorporating the things that you know have been proven to be successful in the past. If you're looking at scouting reports, which have a ton of value, scouts do a great job of identifying skills. The same way someone who's really into eating out at a restaurant could probably do a really good job of telling you what meal they liked or didn't like. But once you're tasked with arranging that and ranking it in order, that's when it gets tough. Um, and that's where I find that draft analytics is, is really helpful in one, on one side. But even taking a step back from that before the rankings even start, just analyzing players, there's a ton of context that's obviously missed by these models. They lack a ton of data. Even with the NHL data, I wouldn't be confident in these models because you're projecting kids who are 17, 18, or 19, or however old these draft guys are, and you're projecting them for 5, 10 years down the road. So context is critical. And so what I realize is when I'm doing some of my consulting stuff or, or just analyzing prospects is the way I approach the OHL prospects is extraordinarily different than how I approach the other prospects. And the reason for that is because I have a ton of exposure to these OHL guys. I've seen these guys live. I've seen them over video. I've seen them in all different ways. I've spoken to people around the league. I have a little bit of insight on, on their character, what their coaches think, the types of roles they're put on. But with a model, you're lacking that. So to give you a good example is the kid the, the uh, Senators took in the second round, Alex Formington. Yep. There's a ton of context required to understand the pick of this player. He's a guy who... It's drafted real late in the uh, Ontario League by London. Was a big scorer in minor midget, but played with some pretty good players like Zach Gallant, I think. Uh, it was Gallant's team. Um, but he's like 5'4 at the time when he was drafted. He's 6'1", 6'2 now. And he's still a twig. So there's obviously a ton of physical maturity and a ton of room for him to catch up there. But he's a great skater. He's extremely fast. He's a good 200-foot player. So will the offense and will his hands catch up to him, the same hands that he had a few years ago? Probably. And also, if you know anything about London Knights hockey and you've watched the Knights for the last year or so, you realize that Formington wasn't really put in the position to succeed that a lot of other prospects are put in, regardless of whether or not they earned it or he would have earned it on another team. So to look at a model which tries to incorporate some things like estimated ice time, it's not perfect and that was a big addition to this year's dev model, um, you're still lacking on a lot of that context. So you're not doing it necessarily scientifically. You're still eyeballing this stuff. But you're saying, well, now that I see what the model's putting out on this player, how does that influence my thoughts on this prospect? Okay, now why is the model high on him when I'm not? Or why is it low on him when I'm not? Because when the stats line up with, with your eye test, there's not much room left for analysis. You kind of sort of validate yourself. But when there's a discrepancy there, you have to reconcile it. So are you reconciling it? Are you overstating something that, that, that maybe the model is, is sort of valuing quite a bit lower or who's right, who's wrong? It's tough. So if I look at someone's results and I say, okay, well, the model thinks that they should be a top 10 pick and I think they're a second rounder, I want to figure out why it thinks they're a top 10 pick. So then I have to peel back more on the numbers. Um, but again, I mean, that forces myself from a scouting perspective as well, from the eye test perspective, to really challenge myself and say, well, what types of uh, cognitive biases am I susceptible here to, or what am I lacking? So it, it's so tough, and there's no right or wrong way of doing it. It's really just, can I incrementally improve from the incumbent process? And I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. And I think 
a big thing that I struggle with in terms of uh, how to how to rank guys or, or how to evaluate um, you know 17 year olds who are playing in let's just keep it OHL who are playing in the OHL is the difference between the best play the best players in the league and the worst players in the league is massive. You know if you, if you compare it to the NHL. The, all right. the players are sort of uh, you know closer together, and and it works also with with teams. The best OHL team and the worst OHL team. There's a huge difference, so it's very difficult to kind of put context around like you know is he just on a good team with good linemates, or is it the opposite, or are they going up against you know very easy competition all the time, and that's why his numbers are um, you know off the board, or and and obviously you know that's when when the real kind of uh, value of, of, of scouting in the eye test comes in, but it's just, it's very difficult to just, you know, as a casual person, try to peg someone uh, in a draft because it's just, it's just not fair to the player and it's not fair to yourself to sort of put, put something out there when there's, there's just so many variables uh, at the junior level that that's sort of, that, that's, that sort of tail off towards the NHL level. Yeah. And it goes back to the point of just how good of a job do scouts do? Well, they do a tremendous job of identifying skills and projecting skills. They do a pretty bad job at times. They fall susceptible to the same biases that everyone else can fall to of overrating or underrating certain players for whatever reason. And so the objectivity of a model, even if the inputs of the model wasn't sort of objective, obviously, because someone has to pick what goes into it. Right. Um, so there's a subjective element there, but it can provide a great sober second thought. And again, when things don't line up, you have to reconcile them somehow. And there's been great discussions I've had with, with scouts who have said, well, what am I missing here? And so we dig deeper and look into the model and we say, well, it turns out this kid's born in August and he only is playing 15 minutes a night and all the other guys are playing 19 and he also didn't score for the first 20 games, but he was getting a ton of shots during that time. So there you are. What, what are you left with? Well, okay, well, maybe the scout, I wasn't realizing he was playing three or four minutes less a night than everyone else. And so when I looked at the score sheet and he didn't stand out and he was getting some bad luck when I first saw him for a few viewings, I mean, that, that's illuminating for me. So, again, I mean, it, it, it's so difficult. Scouts have one of the hardest jobs in the world, but I think the data – analytics and implementing it correctly um, can, can provide tremendous uh, dividends. And now, let's talk about your job with, uh, with the Steelheads, because you are uh, the director of player evaluation, and you're the assistant to the GM, uh, James Richmond, that is. He's also the coach. Um, so that's, that's sort of a new title. You, you worked under uh, a hockey analytics uh, title before. Um, this one's a little more, uh, I guess, well-rounded, you could call it. And tell me about what's going on with you guys in Mississauga, because you guys are definitely putting more resources, at least publicly, into uh, into analytics and, and data than, than most teams around uh, junior hockey. I think that's pretty fair to say. Yeah, I mean, what, what, we t- what you talked about a little bit earlier, about the spread of talent in the OHL that exists that doesn't necessarily exist in the NHL um, can lead to this, some discrepancies there that also imp- impacts the data. So you can't just assume and apply a principle that may hold true in the NHL to the OHL. So using, for example, let's say Corsi, you can't just necessarily say, well, if Corsi is useful in the NHL, it's useful in the OHL. I'm not going to give the answer of whether or not it is or how important it is or isn't, but 
it doesn't necessarily apply that way because the reason Corsi works in the NHL as a predictive statistic is because of the spread of talent among teams is not so significant like it is in the OHL to the point where you have to assume if you're getting more shots at the end of the day over thousands of shots of a sample, it's sort of washing out the quality aspect right. of it a little bit. Um, not completely, obviously. So you can't just make those assumptions that are so bold in the OHL. So you have to sort of test what you're doing. Um, but with, with with statistics and sort of how we're integrating that and with the steelheads, there's a lot of different ways. There's in the draft, which I sort of elaborated or alluded to a story a little bit earlier on, and that's um, something that we're going to invest more in on this season, and that's really having more data on these guys that we're, uh, that we're considering drafting having a more rigorous process for our scouts to evaluate them and using some modeling to sort of uh, evaluate them and predict them a little bit better. When we started with that last season, we're probably going to take a much bigger uh, role with that this year um, by integrating more elements that were lacking in last year's model, namely uh, scouting uh, attributes or qualities that we can learn from scouting reports. Um, So that's on the draft side. Um, one of the big areas we use it is on the coaching side. Michael Doyle, who's now our assistant general manager, is working last year real closely with uh, James Richmond and tracking some data that we felt was fairly important from a coaching perspective and going through some of that and using that uh, as a tool to help our players improve. But as well, we were last season starting a, a pretty major task, and I, I can't say how thankful I am for how good of a staff that we had helping me out. Um, and I was tracking data throughout the rest of the OHL. And so we were taking uh, track of data that a lot of NHL teams aren't necessarily tracking. And it's stuff that we felt was pretty important. It made a big impact for us, especially at the trade deadline last season. It was, it was a big factor in some of our acquisitions or some of the acquisitions that we didn't make right. as well. So uh, that was another area where we're using it. Um, and another one is just sort of valuing players and projecting players year to year. So... If we, if the market is is uh, trading players for draft picks, what is the market willing to pay for a certain player? What do we think that the draft picks or the currency or whatever is being used is actually worth? And where can we use that to exploit an inefficiency or identify a new one? So it's really looking for any way to gain a competitive advantage, whether that's on the coaching side, asset management side, player valuation, uh, draft projection, whatever it is. Um, we're, we're, we're not going to close any doors before we sort of open it and, and look into it a little bit. Well, and I think the key uh, component or, or uh, you know, part of what you guys are doing there is that it seems like the majority of the people or maybe everyone in that front office and coaching staff seem to at least be giving analytics the, the time of day. And I'm saying, like, that's the bottom of – that's the, the worst-case scenario. I think that – uh, most people there seem to be uh, open-minded and, and willing. Uh, you know, you see, like you mentioned, Michael Doyle uh, used to be running the analytics, and now he's the assistant GM. So you, you, that obviously signals, okay, the, the organization is happy with, with what he's brought to the table, and now he's going to have a bigger role. So, you know, when everyone's sort of on the same page or at least willing to, to think about being on the same page, uh, that goes a long way. Yeah, and that's the big thing. It's the, the, the willingness to hear new ideas and to consider that maybe what you felt initially wasn't always the right answer. And, and, and it's obvious things. Like, no one really thinks that they're always right. And if they think they're always right, they're probably a pretty stupid person. So <laughs> That should be like a bumper sticker or something or like some sort of meme. Yeah. 
But uh, so so James Richen, for example, I mean, we've had some interesting discussions where it's sort of James just asking me, just throw shit out there. Just tell me anything that you think might be able to, to be interesting here. From a coaching tactical perspective even, and he's a great, great coach. He has a real meticulous eye. He sees things that I wouldn't necessarily see. But at the same time, when you sort of narrow your, your mindset and you're so focused on one thing, it's easy to sort of miss things that other people might pick up on from, from an outsider's opinion, sort of. And I'm not necessarily a hockey outsider by any means. I've played hockey my whole life and, and love the sport. I've been working in it for years. But I haven't had the same connection that JR has had and the same emotional investment with the individual players and, and with the on-ice stuff because he's with them all the time doing the same things with them. So when I raise an idea of something that hasn't been tried before as far as we know ever, sometimes it will, it will get the wheels spinning a little bit. And that's a big way we use analytics as sort of an, a, a philosophical discussion point rather than, well, this analytic suggests this, therefore we should do this. It's sort of, okay, well, how can we get the wheels spinning? Because we think we're all pretty uh, intelligent people from a hockey perspective and we can offer sort of new takes on things that other people have done. And so borrowing ideas, recycling them in new ways. Um, so we discussed some interesting configurations for the special teams, for instance, or, or some tactical things. And it's not necessarily, well, Zach said we should do this, therefore let's do this. But it's, okay, well, how can we work with this idea? Why won't this work or why will it work? And when you're breaking things down and saying, well, it's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z, then it's great because then you know it's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z. But maybe you start thinking it's not going to work because of X, Y, and Z, but then you start thinking, well, you know what? Maybe it will work. So I, I, I'm thinking that we're going to be trying some interesting things this season, some things that can hopefully uh, really, really improve our team tactically from a coaching side. But a lot of the things that we'll be doing is not trying ideas that we've discussed as well, which has its values as well. So it's an interesting uh, – it's going to be an interesting ride this season for sure. Well, and you hit on a a good point where you can go too far the other way where you're bringing all these ideas to the table. You you know you put down your your stack of paper of ideas and you just go with all of it. Like that's probably the wrong way to go about it. You got to pick and choose your spots, right? Yeah, I mean you can't just say, well, here's a theory, let's do this. But when you can challenge the idea and really break it down into hockey terms, and you're not even talking stats. It sometimes it makes sense, like the four forwards on a power play movement, why didn't it catch on for a long time? Well, well, how am I going to distribute my ice time along my defenseman? Or we've always done it this way. Or it's too risky. But then when you sort of start thinking about it, it just makes a lot of sense. And it's kind of like, well, why didn't we do this years ago? <laughs> yeah. And so we, we were talking about some crazy ideas like doing four forwards at even strength. And so... I mean, realistically, we're not going to be using four forwards at even strength this year. But JR told me a great story about how back in the 80s when he was coaching, uh, I think it was Junior A, they did do four forwards for half a season, and they had amazing success. But that was a personnel decision. But it was, it, it, it was, a, it was a sort of innovative way of approaching hockey that hasn't really been tried before at a higher level, and he had some success with it. So... It sort, of, it sort of indicates that you can't just rule out an idea just because it hasn't been done before. Because maybe you, if you're really deferential to authority, you sort of think that, uh, well, these are real smart coaches, and they are. So they've explored intellectually every possible way of, of playing hockey, and these are the most optimal ones. But it's not the case. I mean, everyone has their blind spots. 
you can be the smartest person in the world, but you might not always think in, in, in a way that's going to maximize what you can do. Makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a good uh, way to end this show. Uh, thanks for, for coming on, Zach. And uh, uh, I don't know if, if, if people can find you on Twitter to see your work or if you have a home for, uh, for anything you publish publicly. Yeah, I've sort of uh, stopped doing some public stuff. I'll have the odd tweets here and there, but they can feel free to uh, send me a follow request on uh, on Twitter, Zach underscore back. Uh, John, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed uh, chatting with you today. All right, take care, man. All right, you too.